Welcome to Pilot in Manchester episode 15. Today we are talking to Hera Hussein, who is a senior advocacy manager at the Open Contracting Partnership and founder of Chain. Hera earns a bachelor's in psychology and economics from the University of Glasgow. She co-founded Empower Hack in 2015, which is a coding and design hackathon to address gender disparities founded the volunteer-led women's rights group, Chain, in 2013. Hera made it to both the Forbes 30 Under 30 and the MIT Innovators Under 35 in 2018. She's currently Senior Advocacy Manager at the Open Contracting Partnership and, driven by transparency, open data, civic tech and gender rights in all her work, she's also a member of the Tech for Good Live team here in Manchester. Hello and welcome. Anything we missed? No, not particularly. That was a very good summary, but also it makes me sound so strange with all of these lists. And you dug up something that I've started in a few years ago and have not like it's kind of finished since then in Powerhack. So that that brought a smile to my face. It's it's nice to remember projects that are you know that started but have finished. Yeah. Well, your LinkedIn profile is probably the longest. I've ever read. You've got so many <laughs> things under your belt. It's incredible. Um, well, we'll be hearing I'm, I'm glad you think that. Uh, I don't <laughs> think my, my, my partner and family agree, but <laughs> it's good that someone appreciates it. Oh, it's very, it's very interesting. Um, yeah, so much going on in there. Um, we'll be talking more about uh, Empower Hack uh, in a little bit. Um, uh, we've also got John Carney here. Sorry, I didn't introduce you before, John. People already know me, it's fine. <laughs> and I'm Jennifer, and we're both um, organisers for PyData Manchester. Um, so to start off with, Hera, can you tell us more about Open Contracting Partnership and the um, and how would you describe what you do there? Yes, sure. So I work at Open Contracting Partnership. That's my day job. It's a non-profit that uh, spun out of the World Bank um, five, six years ago. And the idea is that um, the reason why it was started is because uh, they realized that a lot of the money the World Bank spends in countries around the world would just go missing or wouldn't get like, you wouldn't know what happened to it. And these were usually for development projects. And um, they, that's why they said, well, there must be a way to track where that money is going. And all of that money was around procurement, which is like, you know, when a government or an agency contracts with another. So if you think about it, like government contracts uh, are worth about nine, like more, more than nine trillion um, a year. That's how much money governments spend for some countries. It can be up to 60% of their GDP. So it's so important that there's transparency there. So my job is to work with uh, the 40 uh, plus countries around the world who really care about making contracts more transparent, more efficient. And, um, you know, and working with civil society businesses and, uh, and journalists to really highlight that. So um, it's a remote team and I get to do this from Manchester, which is really nice. I have my colleagues are everywhere from Colombia to um, uh, Ghana to Nigeria and uh, Lithuania. So it's, uh, yeah, Ukraine. It's, it's really cool. That's incredible and puts us 
new remote workers a bit to shame. I mean, if you can work with people in completely different time zones, um, and that's that's really impressive. Yeah, it is. It's it, interesting. My mornings are always so quiet. They're my most productive time. And then in afternoons, because a lot of my colleagues are based in the U- U.S. They and, and that time zone, I start getting busy in the afternoon. So I've also like molded my work style to it. So I, and it it fits me because I'm not an early like morning person. So I wake up late and I start work late. And you know, because my colleagues and I work a bit later, like I have a longer day for than most people. But that's only because I start work late. And that really suits me. Uh, in lockdown, the thing that I'm missing the most is because because I have this routine. I will always go to like the, you know, in Manchester, the hipster like cafe scene is so amazing. So that's oh, how it's I. Oh, amazing! It's so nice. Like I'm walking into a cafe at 10 a.m. and get to do some work when all of my colleagues are either sleeping or are like <laughs> about to end their day, and then I kick off. You know, I have a good, nice morning, and then I start work. Yeah, I am missing Northern Quarter ca- cafes at the moment and bars Me in general. Too. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned you work so it's globally then. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, I don't think I realized that before. I thought it was just UK, but globally it's even better. Um, so what kind of businesses and communities and organizations do you work with? Are you name- able to? Yeah, sure. Any- so when it comes to uh, businesses, oftentimes we're working with big like groups that are contracting with government or like championing a business and human rights, such as the B team. Um, we work with a lot of civil society all the way from like the big ones, like Transparency International to the smaller, like grassroots organizations who are fighting like corruption on the front lines in their communities, like really inspiring people. We're working in really tough uh, environments uh, where there's not trust between government and, 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 and non-profits, you know, places like um, Uganda, um, uh, a lot of the like Balkan states and uh, one of our most active projects is, is in Afghanistan. So it's just really, really a privileged place like to work. And I also get to train a lot of investigative journalists, which I lo- absolutely love doing uh, and working on how they can investigate corruption through open data and that's really exciting and actually a lot of that happens uh, in the UK or is facilitated from the UK which means that I get to meet like journalists from around the world um, in the UK and, and, and talk to them about why it's so important that we all care about where our money is spent and how it is spent. Yeah that's incredible. Sorry Jennifer go ahead. No go ahead. I mean that, that's incredible. I working with such different people in such different um different countries and it must be very different working i mean i imagine working with people a grassroots organization in afghanistan as opposed to working with the world bank in washington is it washington or new york but anyway Uh, dc yeah okay uh washington but you know (laughs) it's got to be a very different way of working with different people like that in the same day i guess yeah, that, that's what makes it really exciting. And also that a lot, like people really care about this. So, um, and the fact that we are able to collect this best practice, but also challenges from across different parts of the world. And there's this global community where everybody wants each other to do better. It makes it really good. There's a whole like movement around open government. Uh, there's an organization called Open Government Partnership. More than 70 countries and states are a part of it. So like the UK is part of one of the founding like 
countries of that. Scotland is not, has joined it as a sub-national uh, like government. So as part of the wider open government space, it's just really exciting to be in a place where both people are working together, but not afraid to call each other out and call each other in as well yeah. and holding each other accountable to things that people pledge to do. With open contracting, it's the same. We have so many countries who pledge, but then how many of them actually follow up with their pledges and making sure all their contracts are published, that are published in a structured open data, that it's not just stopping there, but they're actually engaging with um, their contractors, engaging with people who use those public services, engaging, creating the most diverse lens of looking at things. So for instance, I work on gender within OCP as well. So OCP has an open contract partnership. So that means that when uh, governments are designing public services that are mostly going to be used by women, um, are they keeping women's needs and their design like needs at, at, at the front of their mind? Uh, an example would be Vienna has done a really good job thinking about how cities are cre- how the city is designed for women or not, and that means looking at public, uh, you know, transport links, looking at the timings for when schools, because they have a lot of caring responsibilities, um, or if someone is designing, um, you know, schools in, in any country, you know, the st- stuff that I do is about asking them whether they've thought about lighting, how will like mothers like pick up kids and drop kids and how does that work with, um, you know, the uh, other infrastructures. So you can really go deep um, into it. It's not just about like how much did government pay for a particular item. And of course, even that has been really much in the news in the UK because of all the PPE shortages. And so it's very much of people's minds. And um, it's nice that people are understanding why having such transparency is really important. And that's the reason why we can ask these questions and that we should know more. Um, but yeah, it's it's a good, it's an interesting moment to be working on this. Yeah, I mean, it's, I guess immediately when you say like the, if, how to phrase this when you raise the issue of corruption and how people are spending government money in contracts i guess some of the first things that comes to mind are you know you, you think of um uh, countries that have had civil wars and issues around that and mm. lack of governance but it's easy to forget issues around the uk and the us and how there is intentional not sure how to best phrase it but um discrepancies with how things have been set, yeah. spent, you know, stuff like the Panama Papers that came out a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, the amount of companies that are based in tax havens that are now asking for relief, um, and basically they've been shifting their profits and not, you know, and we've been covering their backs, right? Yeah. Um, or even if it comes to contracts, I mean, there's definitely a problem with the corruption in the UK when it comes to procurement. It's, it's acknowledged in the government's own transparency report um, and their anti-corruption like pledges, but when I'm talking to people in local authorities, they they can't believe it. They 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 think I'm lying. They're like, "There's no corruption here." And I'm like, "Well, the government says there is, and why would they admit to there being corruption if there wasn't one? Like, no one is proud of admitting that they've got a problem like this. And even if it's not corruption, it's like mismanagement. That's yeah. such an important one to think about because if you are paying. Uh, 10 times the price that another like NHS trust is paying for the same like bed sheet, then you know there is a problem. We are in 2020. We should be able to compare prices per item and be able to coordinate that, coordinate that like automatically um, and not rely on people picking up the phone to do it. Yeah. So the fact that we don't have these benchmarks and 
And there is some work happening in NHS around that. But it's just, yeah, it, it makes me think that people people really buy into narratives and, and they don't think about, like, structural problems. Mm. I mean, when you think corruption, you think some shady businessman bringing a you know, briefcase full of money or whatever. Yeah, because you think of a bribe. That's yeah. the thing. The image of corruption is a bribe, but that's only one form of corruption. And it's only like you think of, oh, I can't get my children to school because I need to be on bribe or I can't go to the hospital because we have this idea of corruption as it happens in like highly uh, corrupt countries that have like, you know, other issues that people always think about Africa or Latin America and like fail to take into consideration the political histories. Cathcart Associates is a technology recruitment company with offices in Leeds, Manchester and Edinburgh, covering all things tech, but with an experienced team focusing on data science in the Northwest. They're good at what they do. They are one of the rare companies that understand what their candidates do. Cathcart sponsor Pydata Manchester, Pydata Edinburgh, Mancomel, Scottomel, and are a beating heart in the data community. You can check out their website in the show notes. That sounds really, really interesting. Um... Can you tell us about any success stories uh, from your work with these groups? Yes, it would be my pleasure. So I'll give you an example from uh, Colombia, which I absolutely love, and then Ukraine. So in Colombia, there is um, the city of Bogota, which is amazing and beautiful, and everyone should go there, by the way. Uh, but the like the city of Bogota has um, a lot of um, you know kids who go to school and they're provided with school meals and the Secretary of State of Education for the city found that it, they were just paying too much and it didn't make sense so she, you know she looked into it and the procurement team there uh, looked into it and they found they kind of used open contracting principles to kind of find what the problem was and they figured out that there was a price fixing scandal which was costing the state for like 54 million dollars and it was because there were only like th- 12 or 13 suppliers that were uh, that were working together uh, and price fixing so they figured that out they started an e-market because so that more businesses could apply and it was hugely controversial the, um, there were protests, there were propaganda campaigns against the team who were doing them. There was lots of misinformation, but they did it. They started publishing their data and their prices. And, um, you know, after a lot of, like, at one point they had to rope in the army to deliver, like, interim meals because the suppliers were blocking roads so that they were, couldn't supply meals until this was resolved. So it was really, really difficult and it was really inspiring the way they did it. And, um, well, I think a few of after some time of the reform reforms worked and they now have more than 50 suppliers and most of them had never done business with government before. And they were smaller suppliers They're They're saving that like 54, uh, you know, like million dollars and their uh, the quality of school meals have have increased. So they're more nutritious because they have more like diversity of suppliers. And, you know, it's 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 a competitive market. So that's the kind of like effect that you have. It's not just about uprooting corruption. It's about creating more opportunities for other businesses and, you know, really um, allowing people to create these public goods. So in Ukraine, um, the this is probably like the most dramatic example uh, that I have is because when people think of Ukraine, they think about corruption, cronyism, which are definitely problems that Ukraine has and is still battling with. But after the Maiden Revolution in 2014, 
they basically started from scratch. So they knew that procurement was a big problem. They had a room with dusty files. There were all the contracts and they were going to people who, you know, who knew people. And it was, there were a lot of problems with it. So they created a, a procurement system that was made on the open contracting data standard because open contracting has it uh, as a structured open data standard, which is followed by a lot of countries around the world. And uh, they built a whole procurement system based on that called Prozoro, which means everyone sees everything. And the idea was that all data would be published about who bids, who wins, for what, when, how it's delivered, so that people had no place to hide. Or the stakes for lying like to the government would be really high because anyone can find it. So that helped them save more than a billion dollars in, 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 in costs. And they had the perception of corruption by businesses who wanted to do business with government or had done went like went down by 50%. So it, this is the kind of impact that we're talking about. Um, and, you know, when I think when I say these things, I think about all the things that the UK has done, which, you know, UK has been a leader in terms of committing to open contracting, championing open contracting in G7, G20, all of those places, um, and have do publish like contracting data, but it's, there's so much room for improvement. <laughs> it's just it's just really frustrating because I'm like, wow, we can do so much better. You know, it's so inspiring to see these other countries working well with a lot less resources. Why isn't it the UK that we can tell how many of our businesses are, you know, minority-owned businesses or women-owned businesses? How can why can't we tell, you know, how many of the contracts that are, are let out go to you know small um small companies or local companies how can why can't we tell what is the what is the average price per item for a particular like regular purchase why can't we track where the money is going easily why do we have to you know go through all of these different has and we can't even tell if something was delivered that's the most frustrating thing uk does not have any implementation data so that means i can tell at the moment in the uk that so and so won this contract and then I can I can see what the company name is. I can go into company's house and find the company number. So I can do some more digging. But I can't tell whether that contract was actually delivered. Was it delivered on time? And then even to just compare whether the amount that was spent with that particular contract was over, under, or just at the same amount that it was awarded at, I need to compare another data file, which does not have any identifier with the pre previous data file. So you can imagine all the data problems that can come up with it. That this is the set kind of work that businesses have to do when they're spotting opportunities or even like journalists. It's so hard. I feel so bad when I'm training UK journalists. I'm like, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Things are really tough to investigate, but we must. So what is, you talked about open data and working with journalists um, a lot. Uh, how do you... How do you do that? What do you do in your in your training? How do you connect them? Do you connect them with open data or do you, what do you do? Well, I mean, open data isn't a person, so I can't connect them. It's more like I'm, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, I'm telling them how they can access those open data sets, how they work, what are the key fields um, and how they can use, how they can spot red flags because we've done research on it and, and know what red flags can look like on da in data forms. So telling them gotcha. what are the key ways that people usually circumvent the rules and like how do you do things like, you know, doing like cross analysis of different data sets or, um, and, and share how other countries, uh, journalists from other countries have done it. 
Wow. So this, this is data that anyone can get. Yes, it is all available. It's not in the best format, but it is definitely <laughs> available on uh, Contracts Finder. All right, cool. Um, so you've also, uh, so Empower Hack, as we mentioned earlier, and Chain were featured in the April 2016 edition of Wired. Um, tell us more about what they are or were <laughs> and uh, the role data and tech can play. Yeah, so Chen is definitely is. Uh, we have I started it seven years ago. It's still going. It's an amazing community of seven, like four hundred people from different parts of the world who really care about making things more, um, having more access to user friendly information uh, around uh, you know gender based violence, things like domestic abuse, sexual assault, um, and it's really thorny and vital critical problems that there's just um there's so many so much gatekeeping around it and um so that's and all of the resources that chen produces you know it's done by volunteers as i've just told you i have a a full-time day job and so do other volunteers and uh, we produce a lot of tech-based products uh, which could be things like um guides like how do you stay safe online or it could be like mini courses that are delivered you know uh, at a particular time and place where it's safe for the person to receive them we have a chat bot which is not very chatty and it's just a search assistant and we're building like a couple of more uh like digital tools to support survivors and yeah it's a really really inspiring community and empower hack was um a collaboration of Chen and two other like uh, people who were really who were really concerned that a lot of the the tech efforts around refugee empowerment um you know after the war civil war in Syria started was around um looking at the it was like oversimplifying the challenges the refugees may face um and wasn't really thinking about the particular problems that women and girls might face so that was the origins of it and we worked really hard on it for maybe two years and then we closed it because for me I was very disillusioned with the refugee tech scene I just I don't think I've been in a more demoralizing place um, when, as far as the tech sector goes because there was a lot of white saviorism I heard lots of problematic things I was really concerned about the amount of money people were spending in creating these hackathons that led to products that like the projects that died the next day, people just turned up to them to think that, yeah, we'll just create something and some charity and then just do it. And like charities are not like your, like your workers who are just going to be like hanging around to like to, to work on a hacky thing that you put together over three days and they have their own projects. And all the time they didn't have any resources. I just was really concerned with the way the sector was and, felt like I was spending a lot of time of like my volunteer time on something that wasn't delivering any impact whereas I was doing Chen and it was delivering impact every day and because we had long-term integrated approach where we were creating tools that were being used right away and the the lead time was very like long in, in, in PowerHack so yeah I just was I just what I was so happy to leave that even though I was really sad to close on Embarhack with the other two co-founders, but I was really happy that we did with when we did because, and I'm still quite disillusioned with the refugee tech scene. In fact, I think 
any hackathons for social good. I am skeptical of all of them. And if you are one who's organizing it, please, please don't. And if you are <laughs> insistent on doing it, have a proper think about whether the money and time you're spending could be just be a better, like you could just donate it to a charity that really needs it uh, or to individual people who need it. And if you're still insistent on doing it to engage your employees or community, then please take care in making sure that you are centering people's experiences and not diminishing their dignity in the way you talk about them. Um, I've heard things like, oh, can refugees, do they even know what like chat bubbles are? Do Can they even use phones? Like this is the kind of stuff that I was like hearing from really experienced UX researchers and tech entrepreneurs and people working in the charity sector. So as a migrant myself, it really frustrated me to hear these things. And yeah, it was just, yeah, I just often got told, talked over by people who had degrees from SOAS um, and thought they knew more about my region than I did. So yeah. That sounds that incredibly is... frustrating. Very. Yeah. Yes, uh, very wise words. Um, I think you make several good points there. Um, I, hackathons, I, I always, it's such a shame that some people, like they just, the projects born out of hackathons do often just, they just last for that. I think it's 99% death rate. I, I read that somewhere. Yeah. Someone had done an analysis of some like big, like, startup hackathons and they found that it were 99 yeah. and i think others as well i feel like unless you have a charity partner that is definitely going to carry it forward and has a plan and, and has internal capacity to do so because that's really mm -hmm. important that that works or that you have some post hack support plan um right. i just yeah and also like let's solve violence against women in two days <laughs> no you can't it's easy <laughs> it's like what are you and there was one, yeah, there were just been a few around Women's Day and every time the Women's Day comes around, I'm like dreading and I'm like, whoa, I'm mm. going to get so frustrated just by looking at Twitter. Um, yeah. And you look and at... Tech saviorism, even with COVID-19. Exactly. It yeah. is. It's, it's so it's so right. It's, it's the thing. It's like, and as people in the tech sector, it feels weird to keep telling people not to do this. <laughs> but I'm like, that's what being a responsible member of the tech community is. That you mm. tell people when it's good and when it's like you're not supposed to use it and use it in the wrong way. Hackathons are great for ideation. It's great for coming up with new features for existing projects. It's great for education. You can educate people yeah. a lot about a problem, change the way they think. They are not good for creating interventions. Absolutely not. Especially around thorny problems that a lot of people are already looking at. And you expect mm -hmm. some noobs in or three days to come up with like an idea, sometimes even a one day hackathon. And I'm like, how, how? <laughs> and like, I have been working in this space for seven years. And like, I don't understand how you're doing this in one day. The idea that like a yeah. mobile app will solve some deeply entrenched social, um, social issues. God. Yeah, it's actually, uh, if anyone is a fan of watching series on Netflix, there is one uh, that just come out called Never Have I Ever. And um, it's around the South Indian girl, uh, kid and like her experiences. Um, Mindy Calling has created and there's an episode in it, which is about, well, what would you do if you won World War Two and you could create an app to solve some sort of problem happening in World War Two? And one was around helping 
Jews uh, who were trapped under like Nazis, and one like one group was creating something to help Churchill. It was it was like it was a whole play on tech saviorism, and it was so funny. It was so funny. It was so sad, but so funny. I really recommend you watch that episode. <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I've seen that on my on Netflix. So I'll uh, yeah, I'll give that a watch. Um, <laughs> I do like Mindy Kaling. <laughs> um, so yeah, speaking of uh, tech for maybe good um you are a member of tech for good live yes. and also other social innovation networks including this is a long list uh wikipedia makes sense starting block wef's global shapers unis and youth and the open heroines group how i mean i don't know how you find the time um <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so what are i've not heard of some of these um i think most people are aware of wikipedia um <laughs> But that's probably the only thing on that list that most people would have would be aware of. So can you tell us more about some of these? Yeah, these are subgroups. So um, and quite niche communities, which is why, you know, not a lot will know about them. And that's fine. Um, so makes sense. And I've joined all of these at different points of my life. If that makes sense. The first community that I joined was, um, I believe, actually, I can't remember whether it was Make Sense or Starting Block. Or either one of them. Starting Block is a leadership retreat in the US to cultivate leadership. It's actually... It's actually shutting down now or it's transforming the way it is, which is really sad. But it was a hugely transformational experience for me. Um, I was a student in Glasgow University when I went there and it really like inspired me that actually I, I could do a lot more with where I am. I've always been very confident. So it wasn't like I, I thought that I needed the confidence boost, but it was just nice to be in the community where I felt, okay, there's some lots of ambitious people around here. And I guess I am ambitious as well. So I could... You know, like I belong here. It's that feeling. And uh, Make Sense was definitely probably the biggest turning point in my career because it it's a it's a network of uh, social um, entrepreneurs, people who want more social entrepreneurship to happen in the world. And it was started by an amazing guy called Christian Vanizet, um, who is French and started in France. And I met Christian and he... Um, yeah, he told me to join the community and I did. And I basically did a lot of volunteering work to come up with design thinking workshops for social entrepreneurs. And that showed me that actually there is a way of both make like making money, being sustainable, but still doing good. And, and that really opened my eyes. And that, that was probably like, yeah, the, the, it was the impetus that I needed to start my career in the space, in the tech for good space. It brought me to tech for good. And also made sure and that's how I started Chen actually because and I started it because I was so inspired by Make Sense and all the people that I had worked with there as a volunteer people from Make Sense supported me when I started Chen so finding those communities is so helpful and unfortunately a lot of this is like who you know and that's how you find out about these things so uh, if you are someone who feels like you're missing that support community that can inspire you to do more but also like help you then you know look for them they're there um, and sometimes you just happen to come across them by chance, like I did. But I came across them because I went to a conference on social entrepreneurship. So going to conferences is a really good way of finding out these niche communities. And WEF's Global Shapers, there's actually one starting in Manchester, and I'm part of that team. So please do. Uh, we are looking for more applicants. So it's a community that by the World Economic Forum. And the idea is to uh, mobilize young people across the world who sh who should be using their power um to do 
create social change in their communities to tackle whatever challenges the community is facing. So in Manchester, um, we have um, Flavio, who is works at uh, IBM, and Alice, who runs Invisible Cities Manchester. They both are the curators of it, and I'm part of the team. And um, we're, we were working on providing like mental health relief and also um, uplifting content around uh, what's happening in Manchester during lockdown. That's what that's the project that we're working on. And if you're interested, if you just Google uh, World Islamic Forum, Global Shapers, Manchester Hub, you'll come across our website and please do apply. It's uh, There are certain requirements you need to meet to get in, but uh, have a look at that. We'll make sure we put a link to that in the um, in the show notes. Yeah, great. Yeah, for sure. Um, so on that note of getting involved, how can people get involved in projects? We get, as at Padded to Manchester, we get a lot of people asking how to find projects to work on, either to, to build on their own experience or to um, contribute to something. Um, and and this is you know, from people anywhere between beginners through to um, people more seasoned in Python and data. So uh, you're involved, you have massive involvement in the community. Uh, so you, you, I'm sure you know like so lots of things going on. Um, how can people get involved in projects in a meaningful, in a more meaningful way? I've got hackathons on this list, but maybe, maybe not. <laughs> no, I that. Hackathons are great as your first foray. If it's like, if you've, ne- if you've never engaged with the tech community, you don't know how it works and mm. you want to get a very like basic introduction to the sector, you can go to a hackathon. It's a very inspiring atmosphere for sure. I went to so many in my life and organized many as well. Um, so I'm definitely part of the, like, I'm guilty of being part of that hype. Um, and now guilty of being the one criticizing it. Um, but I think that's a really good way to start, for sure. Going to meetups is a good idea because you get to hear what people are doing. And I think a lot of times people, I, I as a person who runs lots of tech, uh, tech and volunteering projects, I know that people want to volunteer, but they often don't know what is a good fit for them. It's, in, it's right. understanding that good fit is really important. Um, so that means knowing what, what is the space that you're entering, you know, knowing, getting to know different projects so you can see, okay, what are the things that I'm passionate about and what time do I have? I think you have to be brutally honest with yourself about time commitment. One of the worst things of running a volunteer community, which I've done for the past seven years, is is the amount of people that waste our time. Um, and oftentimes they don't know themselves, no matter how many times you warn them that we, this is going to be a time commitment that they can make time. You have to be the kind of person who makes time to do this. You know, if you're looking for like, oh, I'll just do one day, like uh, every few months, then it's better you stick at like going to the soup kitchen because being involved in projects, the projects take a lot of, it takes a lot of time for us to onboard you and make sure you are up to date. And like, that's just, and we're also volunteering. And even if, even if it's someone's day job, you're taking a precious time that they could be spending helping someone. So just remember to be very responsible with your requests and your offers of volunteering too. Uh, people often say they'll volunteer and do something and they never do it. They just disappear or they keep delaying it. So I'm, I'm not trying to put you off, but what I want to say is that I think being responsible is so important. I'll give you an anecdote. Yesterday, my husband was uh, in the car and someone backed the car and hit him, hit the car and was... And basically was driving away. So my husband caught up with him and said, you know, you just like hit my car and 
you didn't even leave your details, insurance details. And the guy was like, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, but I'm a really good person. I'm helping with the COVID effort. I'm going to, you know, distribute some meals. And my husband's like, yeah, I'm a doctor. I know. <laughs> but like, so like the, <laughs> the point being that, you know, don't get into the hype of like, oh, I'm such a good person because I'm doing this. Like, think about realistically, what is it that you can offer? You can also learn things and we have a lot of volunteers who just don't want to do what they do for their day job, but want to learn something new, and that's fine. But finding the right project fit is very important. When it comes to Tech for Good, there are lots of established communities that you should join and be part of. So in Manchester, that would be the Tech for Good Live, Open Data Manchester. You have Herpless Data for Women in, in, in Data, if you're really interested in that. Um, when it comes to Civic Tech, there's like, there's a, uh, there's, I guess there's less happening in Manchester when it comes to that, but there are other things happening across the country. So there is Tech for Good Live in London and Southwest. There is uh, Bethnal Green Venture runs one. The ICE, there's a ICT for development, so ICT for D uh, meetup. There's one that's run by You're Here. Like there's so many people who run any Tech for Good meetups, um, and they're really interesting. You can find them all usually on Meetup. Dot com Make Sense has a group in London as well, which is a really good way to get introduced into the social entrepreneurship scene if you want that. And and Twitter is a great place to run into all of these, to be honest. So if you are someone who's on Twitter, following the tech for good people or the civic tech folks is a great way to know what's happening, what events uh, are, are there, who's hiring, all of that stuff. So yeah, my main tips would be is look up on Meetup. And secondly is to like, like go to a lot of Meetup events. And thirdly is to uh, follow the right people on, on Twitter. That is very comprehensive. Thank you. Thank you very much. Horsefly is a data science driven provider of talent analytics solutions with offices in Manchester and Liverpool. The data scientists code in Python every day. If you love data and have a natural curiosity to dive into a data set, get in touch with Horsefly or reach out to PyData and we can pass you on. Check out their website in the show notes. Without the support of Horsefly Analytics, we wouldn't be able to do this podcast. I think now we'll move on to our final question that we ask everybody, and that is, who do you admire from the tech community? So many people, so, so many people. I'll give, I'll give a shout out to a few people then. I'll start Perfect. with my home country of Pakistan. So I really admire one of my closest friends, Nikit Dad, who is uh, the, one of the world's most like um, like experts on privacy and, uh, and genders. She does a lot of work on surveillance and on, on making sure that our uh, you know, online public spaces are are open and uh, also like, you know, are, are harassment free. So she's amazing uh, to follow her on Twitter, Nikadad. And then in different parts of the world, there will be so many people, but I'll come down to the UK. So in the UK, I really admire my, uh, my I'm just talking about my friends. I'm so, so <laughs> this is so bad, but uh, Moore, who actually runs a group called Open Heroines and uh, which if you are a uh, someone who identifies as a woman or non-binary and is working in civic tech and open data you should definitely join our slack group it is an amazing community and we uh, it's really shaking up the open data scene by really talking about gender and 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 restructuring our space so really inspiring community to be part of and my my friend more rubenstein is amazing um i really admire um the work that's happening with the catalyst project so if you 
uh, look into the Catalyst project um, and you'll find that there's really like amazing things happening um, in in that scene about helping charities go digital. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, it's the right th- uh, project to follow. And there are lots of inspiring people there uh, working on it all the way from, you know, Cassie Robinson, who is at uh, the National Lottery and, and knows a lot about tech for good, just knows a lot. So definitely follow her on Twitter to uh, Dan from uh, Cast. Uh, was great. Um, when it come when we come down to Manchester, there are loads of people like Bex from Tech for Good Live, who was awesome, and like Manchester should be infinitely proud of of having Bex, uh, because she is just amazing and and such a like a leader, and often not recognized for being that. So Bex is awesome. Um, and you can should follow definitely follow her on Twitter as well. And um, there is Julian and Sam from Open Data Manchester who do great stuff. Um, and Emer Coleman who uh, is in Manchester sometimes, but sometimes not. Um, and really started the Federation community. So that was a big thing for Manchester. Uh, really put Manchester on the map when it came to uh, social businesses and like social tech. So I, I, I mean, I could go on for like 20 minutes. There's, <laughs> it's, so there's just so many people and it sounds really bad, but I seem to know all of them. So I, maybe I need to bright, uh, broaden my circle as well. But maybe when you work in this space for seven years, you tend to know it's just niche space. You get to know everyone. My other friend, Dama, is a really good person to follow on Twitter. If you want to know what's happening in the tech for good scene, she works at Bethel Green Ventures, uh, and um, knows all the events is often hosting them so if you want to know a knowledgeable person in the scene is definitely follow uh damo Whew. all right that's <laughs> brilliant thank you <laughs> yep uh i think sean high is going to have fun uh writing down all those uh connections so thanks sean in advance <laughs> um brilliant well <laughs> thanks hera that was incredible thank you very much for your time um and i guess we'll see everyone next time yeah thank you so much for doing this yeah, thank you for coming on Harry. Right. thanks bye, bye.